Welcome to The Leadership Mind with Massimo Bacchus. This show is all about the mindset of leadership, the stories, assumptions, self-limiting beliefs, and perspectives that either create or destroy your ability to lead. In this podcast, we'll speak with experts in leadership development, coaching, learning and development, talent management, human resources, and most of all, from those in the arena, the leaders themselves. By trade and training, I'm an executive and team coach and leadership development facilitator with a relentless curiosity and passion for helping people, teams and organizations thrive in pursuit of their vision and purpose. The pursuit of purpose is a combination of doing your actions and behaviors and being, how you accept and allow. The mind is where the connection between our being and doing and our intent and actions occurs. The goal is to bring you new perspectives, insights and practices to help you lead authentically, navigate your career intentionally, and grow high-performing teams successfully. My hope is that in these episodes, you will witness humility, where we celebrate our failures as much as our successes, curiosity, where we share wisdom and insights openly, and community, where we all share in our growth together. Let's explore the leadership mind. All right, all right. Welcome, everybody, to the Leadership Mind podcast. Today, I am joined by none other than Martina Stone-McGaugh. Martina is a principal at Martina Stone Consulting, and she works in organizational effectiveness and executive coaching. After a career in research-based consulting at a tech startup, she now spends her time working with teams and individuals to find the key areas where improvement will make the biggest impact on the organization and the individual. Martina focuses on effectiveness in coaching, leadership development, and team alignment. She works across industries and different sized organizations. While she hails from New York, she's now based in Los Angeles. And a little known, and I would say all too little known fun fact about her is that she is a competitive barbershop barbershop chorus uh, singer in Santa Monica, California. Martina, welcome, and it's great to see you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We are going to have to find some time in this conversation to talk about uh, how you come by the gifts and talents of barbershop competition and then how you sure. find your way into that space. Um, <laughs> I feel like there's like a reality show in the making or something here. There should be anyway. Um, as we, as we get started, I would love to hear what, what is your, uh, what's your superhero origin story? If we think about, you know, Campbell's work in the hero's journey, like how did you come to be the awesome human that you are today? Yeah, what a great question. So I have had a, maybe not terribly unique, but a different journey into the coaching and leadership development space compared to some others. So I had a first career as an international event planner. I did events on the Tower Bridge of London and Great Wall of China, and I absolutely loved it. And when I started feeling a couple years into that, like maybe I was starting to outgrow that, I really dug deeply. I also took a couple assessments to figure out what was it about that work that I loved so much. And through my whole career on every team I'd been on, I was always looking at how can we make this team meeting a little bit better? This is inefficient. How can we dial this up so that we're not wasting our time in this? I had been doing that asked or not asked through all of my career. And through that reflection, I really learned that I loved working with people, working with teams, solving problems, creating experiences for people. 
So I did a pretty big shift. I at one point thought I'd be an event planner my whole life and transitioned into kind of a bigger, broader world that was business and HR. This is really where I honed these skills in, oh, there's a whole world of effectiveness out there where people specialize in that, which is what I do now. So working with teams, working in individuals, doing what I did every step along the way, I now coach individuals, coach teams, create leadership development experiences, which takes all of that experience, but kind of puts me in my, these are my natural tendencies. This is what I always wanted to do. And it turns out I can make a career out of that. It's awesome, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) You know, that you, that your natural tendencies, that your zone of genius uh, is applicable. There's a career you can make a living doing it and you can make a difference and an impact. I find, and I'm curious if you feel the same way, that people in this line of work, specifically around leadership development and coaching, um, can't help but do this work. Like you said, mm-hmm. you were doing it anyways. Uh, early in my you know, adulthood, I worked in commercial real estate. And as I would be showing my clients uh, business parks or you know, shopping centers, I'd be asking about their business and about their team mm-hmm. leadership. And I didn't realize at that time what I was doing, but it, it's so innate. We can't help but not not do what we do. Absolutely. I think when we look at what have we always done, I was the friend that gave advice. I was the friend who everyone told their secrets to. If we really think about what we're doing day in and day out, I often say to coaching clients, if they're thinking through a career choice or thinking through a passion, there's often, there's door one. It's what I've done for 10 or 20 years. And so I'm just going to keep going. There's some sort of high side hustle that people are thinking about. Maybe it's a career, maybe not. And I ask, is there a door three? Is there something else you maybe haven't considered as a career? It hasn't really bubbled up to the top, but is there something else you love, you would just love to be doing? And that's what I found that has really kind of propelled me into the career that I love to do. I see myself doing forever now. So how do you go from uh, being on the Tower Bridge, the Wall of China, and making this leap that obviously in hindsight, it seems so logical, but I would imagine when you think back um, for the position as an event planner around the world, this kind of seems like a big step. It's a big, a big shift. Yeah, it was. It took a huge leap of faith, to be honest, and it took some confidence some natural and some I worked on to really say, I know what has made me successful in this first career. And I'm going to trust that that is going to take me with a whole lot of work and a whole lot of networking and so on that I can transfer that into talent and success in another field. And I brought up the assessment, not because assessments are the end all, a personality assessment, for example, doesn't tell you exactly what's gonna happen in your life, but really when you lean on your strengths more than your weaknesses, and you really say, this is what I bring to the table, and it can be as an event planner, or it can be as a coach, or it can be as a leadership development designer, When you really start to trust that, it was a leap of faith and it was a little bit of digging into confidence to say, I think I'm going to be able to do this. That said, it took a whole lot of luck and a whole lot of meeting the right people and a whole lot of work to make that happen. But it started with a leap of saying, I'm not I'm not interested in doing this for the rest of my life and I'm going to try something else and we're going to see where that takes me. I appreciate that you call out. the luck that may have played in, in your success in your career thus far. 
Um, but let's not overshadow the fact that, um, you know, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. Yeah. It, it took a leap of faith and conviction in yourself and your dreams and a knowing of your capabilities and a desire to continue to learn and grow and evolve, which is scary, you know, especially when we establish our adulthood and, you know, our, our, our brand and our title and all these things. And then to shift all of that um, is really scary. And that's what this podcast is all about, Martina. When we think about the leadership mind, so much of our limitations, I believe all of our limitations are structured in our mind. There is only so much we can do as human beings. I'm never going to play in the NBA. Uh, and it's not just because of my height. I'm also you know, not as coordinated as, as I would need to be. But regardless, much of what limits us is the stories that we hold on to and, and those limiting beliefs. Yep. I'm, I'm curious, you know, in, in the context of um, recognizing the value of a reframe for your own career, um, what are some themes or some overused buzzwords within the space of HR and leadership development that mm. you could use a reframe uh, or maybe a retirement altogether? <laughs> yeah, I think maybe reframe is uh, for the word I'm going to bring. And so in thinking about this question, what came to my mind over and over again was ROI. ROI is a tricky one for me in the people space. It is a worthy cause in business and in life to think about what effort am I putting out and what am I getting in return and is it worth it? That is a great concept that works in lots and lots of ways. When you move it into thinking about ROI on people and on investment in people, I think it gets a little bit dicey. And I have been hearing in the coaching world, in the development world, a lot of talk about we need to start making the business case and creating really specific quantifiable ROI for a coaching engagement or for a leadership development program. The conversation is a worthy one. If we don't know why we're doing something and we don't know what's going to be different on the other end, that's reason for pause. But to say we're going to coach someone for X number of hours or have a team work together on team development and alignment for so many hours or meetings and to be able to quantify what that looks like, I think is a bit of a fallacy because people who are empowered and who are engaged and are willing to work a little bit harder, do we hope that shows up in productivity Yes, it should. Do we hope our employee engagement scores are a little bit higher next go around? Sure. But it's a long game. And I think when we dig too deeply or are too strict on ROI needing to be there, we're not even going to give it a shot unless we have this quantifiable result. That's just not quite how people work in my view. And my view is let's try some stuff whether we can see the ROI clearly or not, because I think it's a better choice to try than to not. I could not agree more. And it, it um, probably till the end of time will, will continue to be um, icy unless we can really get down to a place where we can, you know, scientifically quantify it. What I um, say that it's akin to, if you think about transformation within an organization, principally that's why people go through coaching is transformation or leadership development, it's transformation. 
an organization goes through transformation to go to the cloud, they say, we're going to adopt AWS and we're going to move to the cloud. And it's going to be this big initiative and everybody get on board. We're not going back. This is going to be a new way of doing business. And everyone aligns around that. And I realize that tomorrow will be different than today. And we're committed to doing that. And yet sometimes, more often than not, when people think about leadership development or coaching, it's not about we're not going back. It's mm-hmm. like we're just checking a box or we're we're trying to change something and we'll see if it works. So I wonder how would um, these programs be adopted differently if the mindset was um, with the same commitment that there is with a cloud migration or some larger mm-hmm. technology transformation or um, transformation within your approach to go to market or strategy. Yeah, I totally agree. It's it's a choice at a certain point, just like going to the cloud is a choice to say our business is not turning back and we're fully committed to this being the future. The same is true of developing and engaging with your employees and really developing your leaders so that they know how to engage the organization and they know how to align the organization. We so often make that optional. We so often say, sure, we'll do it, but we'll do it in a year. Or yeah, we'll start that program, but later. Or let's do it, but let's do it in half the time. Whereas I have a really strong conviction that investing in your people is basically the only way to get work done. The work of your company is getting done by your people. The transformation that you so hope for is by a change in what your employees believe and what their behaviors are. So when I think about especially transformation, such a buzzword, every organization is going through a transformation, which may be true, the transformation is of your workforce. The transformation is how people think about their work how they're committed to it, what they have to go back to their desk and do different that was different than yesterday. So to make that piece optional um, just seems like a bit of a misstep when we are, like you say, so on board and so easily committing to technological changes and digitization changes. um, And sometimes the people get left behind in that. I imagine what you just shared is what you would share with the client when they start talking about ROI and (laughs) them see beyond that. And yet you and I both know that there are some people that are just wired differently. I mean, I think about we're all born with a certain uh, pattern recognition system in us. You and I happen to have people-oriented pattern recognitions. There's other people that see other patterns. When you're working with clients, uh, stakeholders or executives that have that different pattern recognition, what is... Um, some research or statistics that you can go to that substantiate what everything you're saying, while I agree with it, um, the the lesser educated person in our space could just say, well, that just sounds like a bunch of fluff. Sure, sure. And I, I like working with those people. I like making the business case and the financial case for why it's worth doing this work. And the stat I think about Um, often, because it's been around for 20 years, is a stat from Gallup just simply talking about employee engagement and saying that in the U.S. for the last 20 years, with some slight fluctuation, 75% of employees are not engaged. 75% in the U.S. not engaged. Brutal. That Brutal. And that looks like a whole lot of different things. That looks like there's 15% who are actively disengaged. You're probably not going to get them and that's okay to recognize. And then there's something like 60 who are just kind of floating and they're not disengaged, but they're certainly not engaged. 
And what that tells me that sounds like doom and gloom, perhaps. But what I think that means is just that there's this huge opportunity for thinking about work differently. To kind of go to a 10,000 foot view for a moment, when we think about the modern work world, work is set up right now for a man leaving the house, which is fully taken care of by a partner and a someone taking care of the home, going to work fully focused on that for eight or nine hours, driving home and doing that on repeat through a career, often in the same field, if not at the same company. That is the current situation of work, which is not at all matching up with what work looks like for people these days. The demographic of worker has changed so much. And I really feel like if we can tap into just a little bit more the human aspect of what it means to bring our whole selves to work and to really think creatively about how work gets done, there's a business case to be made that that will help. So for example, I don't think it's a work harder. I think it's a work smarter. So this last year has really pushed companies into being creative. Oh my God, we have to work from home. We have to find the technology to do this. And there has been so many success stories across many industries and companies thinking about how that has helped their organization. It has proved that productivity is not just a function of being together in the office. I think that's fantastic because that will create a lot of opportunity for a lot of different people who aren't just the man leaving the home, fully disconnected and able to do that work day. Another idea about just thinking creatively about work is some companies are thinking about gig economies internally. So the last couple decades have really shown us that some people are really attracted to having a lot of option and autonomy and kind of opting in and out of projects for work, as we see for Uber and lots of others. If we as companies can tap into that interest internally, that can create a whole different space of work. If employees can opt into projects and the huge benefit for the company is use talent of their employees that's above and beyond what's in their job description. So you mentioned me being in a barbershop chorus. I have some musical inclination. Has any job ever asked me or asked to utilize that in any capacity? No. <laughs> am I sitting in every role with that talent all day long? I am. How useful that is, is debatable. But you think about people who are graphic designers on the side, who build their own websites, who do crowdsourcing, who are musical, who are all these other things. That type of internal economy can tap into that talent. That is hugely beneficial to the company financially, productivity-wise. And when we think about, you hear the word pivot 300 times a day, because it's happening, companies do have to pivot so often these days. If your workforce is used to doing that, if they're used to taking on things outside their role and they're used to changing what they're focusing on, you very well may have an organization way more prepared to pivot than in this very traditional situation. So when I think about employee engagement, it's, it's a pickle we've had for two decades, if not more. I think about how can leaders and organizations be really creative about what work looks like, and maybe that's a way to move the needle on that. 
There is so much in there, Martina. I mean, uh, and, and a couple of things that really stand out to me. There are inherent gifts in people that aren't being um, deployed, developed, um, or, or maybe even just appreciated in organizations. Yeah. Your musical gifts are an example of that. And maybe there aren't places for it, but maybe there are and people need to you know, think outside of the box and, and what, what that could look like is, is a way to, to draw people together and, and bring your whole self to work. Um, I want to play devil's advocate here for a moment. I recently had a conversation with someone who um, is coming from the paradigm that work is a place that you go to to work Mm -hmm. and that work is a place where you um, get the job done and you compete and you win and you work hard. And their, their mindset was, I don't necessarily see where there is room or need for a focus on psychological safety if we're all just focused on getting the work done. Mm-hmm. Now, I realize to you that might just seem like out of this world thinking, no, but there are people out there that are thinking that way. And um, I'm curious from your perspective, like, what is one thing that you would say to them to help them reframe, reframe their perspective or, or just maybe get them thinking about it a little bit differently? Yeah, I think there's a business case for all of this because frankly, I don't think we'd be doing this if there if there wasn't. Psychological safety is such an important one. This year in the last year really showed us that wow, when things are going on at home, particularly life and death matters, we don't leave that at home. It's just not psychologically possible to say, I'm forgetting about a sick child at home. This year just like ripped the bandaid that, okay, we bring our whole brain to work, fortunately, and that comes with some other stuff. That's just like baseline. That would be a little bit hard to argue after this last year. Even outside of that though, the purpose of psychological safety, does it make people feel good? Does it make people feel more comfortable and more engaged? Yes. The business case for it is if you have a place of psychological safety where hierarchy isn't king necessarily, where people feel they can share conflicting opinions because research shows that that gets to better ideas. Is a little bit of tension on a team is actually ideal compared to full agreements all the time. Research shows you're going to get your better ideas, but even more so than great ideas or new breakthroughs, you're going to hear about problems. You're going to hear about this isn't going well out there. And might we be able to catch that weeks, days, months before we could, if you're not comfortable, that's the business case. You're going to hear what's going on. You're going to catch problems. The fact that it makes people feel good and warm and fuzzy, that's just a bonus. They (laughs) just happen to be connected, but the business case is you're going to learn about what's going on in your organization. You're going to catch problems earlier. You're going to hear more creative ideas and you're going to get to better solutions by people being able to disagree. There's a business case for it. That's what I'd say. A hundred percent. You know, you and I were talking earlier about uh, the, the concept of organizations being a system and the system is essentially um, the sum is greater than the individual parts. Yeah. Psychological safety is um, a lubricant to that machine. It, it, mm-hmm. it, it's something that says like, yes, when we create a network effect in the organization, then we can actually start to actualize the potential of this system, which is the people in service of a vision and a mission and a, and a cause. Right. When you think about systems and organizations right now and the tie-in of, 
of our work in executive coaching and leadership development. Where do you see that intersection and, and you know, what excites you about it? Yeah, so I think thinking about organizations as systems, that's really opened up my mind to how I can work with organizations. So it's really easy to think that an organization is one person in this role coming in doing their job, someone else has another role, they're doing their jobs. Maybe you have some processes, maybe you have some systems, and you think one plus one plus one equals three. When in the reality, one plus one plus one equals like 17 and a half because there's culture and there's norms and there's the way things get done in addition to all the people who, like we're saying, have talents above and beyond what's being asked of them, have more strengths that they can bring to the table. And that the organization really has a personality that's different and bigger than just the people and the processes that are part of it. That's what I think is so exciting about working in business. Businesses are greater than the sum of their parts. Businesses can have huge impact on the world socially and thinking about, you know, the earth. And they have such a platform that is greater than just the people in it. I think that bears a lot of responsibility. I also think there's a lot of opportunity to really think creatively about what's happening in this system. It's not just what Joe and Jane are doing every day, but what are we moving towards? What does the system tell us about what's going on? And another principle thinking about systems is that you need to really trust and believe that the system is creative and has wisdom and really knows what to do. And that's not to say that there aren't going to be pivot points and there aren't going to be distinct changes, but when you trust that the system you've created is creative and wise and smart, I think that's a really fun place to be. Yeah. So let me, let me pause you on that, on that idea. Um, what do you mean by a system being creative and wise? How could a system um, or a collection of people actually have that? So I think this is, it's the same way I have the belief as a coach that the person I am working with has the solutions. It is not my job as a coach to do the work of the person being coached. It is my job to ask really good questions, to maybe have people start to think a little bit differently. But the work of coaching as an executive coach is just to ask the questions and facilitate the knowledge, the wisdom, the solutions, and the ideas the individual already has, and we just need to bubble them up to the surface. If you take that to a much bigger scale of an organization, the organization knows the challenges, and more than likely, the people on the front lines, the people sitting in team meetings, if asked, probably have some really good ideas. When a team isn't functioning well together, I come in and do team alignment. I don't know what the solutions are for them. I ask them what the solutions are for their team. Same when you're thinking about solving business problems. Go to the source. Ask the people doing the work. Ask the leaders who lead that team. What's going on here? What do you think could work? 
That's been a shift for me in the same way for coaching. I don't need to have the solutions. I need to trust that the individual has the solutions because they always do. Same with an organization. I think when we make something bigger, we tend to think we need to be more directive. We tend to think we need the leaders to tell everyone what to do every day. There are moments for that, for sure. But there are way more opportunity to tap into the people you have, to tap into the knowledge, and to trust that you will get to creative solutions by using your system. How do you coach someone when you're working with a client and they're struggling with that connection of them being able to be a leader within the system um, and leading, but also trusting that the system um, and the people in it have a, have a knowing and a knowledge beyond mm-hmm. belief of their responsibility is? Yeah, I think that's just where we experiment and we say, okay, you've been doing it this way. You've been pretty directive for 10 years and that's worked in a lot of ways. It's a balance like anything else. It's not saying you're now hands off, you're asleep at the wheel. It's just saying, let's shift 20% this way. Why don't you in your next team meeting, in your next all hands and whatever it is, really start by asking questions and really be curious and listen. And let's see what that gets you. It might not work the first time. It might not work the second time, but maybe it does the third time. Maybe you hear the great idea that no one else had come up with by asking questions. It's just pivoting a little bit, as well as knowing the moments where I am the leader. I need to be clear about the direction. I am making this decision. That's that's part of my job. And balancing the moments where you really, you're saying, I'm going to rely on my team for this. I'm going to back off and I'm going to let them drive this ship. There are moments for both. And often we overly rely on one. So I just like to start experimenting with, let's choose moments to try the other. There's so much value in uh, creating the space with the clients and creating a um, an awareness and trust for them that experimentation when done right, um, can create a virtuous cycle, yep. right? You can actually continue to build trust. Um, it's when we experiment uh, recklessly or unknowingly that, mm-hmm. that we get our hands slapped or we touch the stove and it was hot, right? Yeah. Uh, so how can we be smart and um, bite-sized with those experiments so the risk the risk and the reward is in the right, the right balance? Um, when you think about the broader context of your work, um, What's one of those big questions that's on your mind that you don't have the answer to, um, but that you think about often? I think often, and I'll be honest, this is a function of 2020 having been the year it is. Um, I've thought about it through my life, but especially this year, I think about diversity, equity, and inclusion in organizations and in the world a whole lot. I think about it because I know I am not the expert on that. I don't have the lived experiences, but I do want to be part of the solution. So when I think about my work, I think about with colleagues and talk about with clients, what does it mean with what we know now, with our knowledge to bake diversity, inclusion, belonging into everything we're doing? I understand the instinct to have a diversity initiative. And sometimes you absolutely need that. 
I am really interested in figuring out how are we baking it into how managers lead and how leaders lead and how we're hiring, how we're retaining. There's lots and lots of good work doing being done about that, but it begs the question of, is that enough? And what can I be doing as an individual? And what the heck has to be happening in the world? I think there's a lot of accountability that we're just on the cusp of really understanding and agreeing with. And I also just recognize it is a huge issue. My ideas are probably not big enough. They're probably not enough. And I just have the question of what do we do about that? Well, I think the fact that you're thinking about it um, speaks volumes uh, to to your character, to the importance of the issue. And um, I don't think it's something that has an answer. And, you know, I'll tell you, recently, a, a friend of mine that I've uh, has been a colleague over the last probably 10 years or so, um, another white guy like me, mm-hmm. um, recently uh, has gone through um, a difficult time in a transition and, and has is transgendered and has recently um, come out as a transgendered woman. Mm. And we were talking about this experience and, and I, you know, was just, um, you know, how can I help what's going on for you and, and educate me. And what they shared with me that was, was very eye-opening and, and again, spoke to how much more, uh, I have to learn and and I don't want to speak on behalf of all white men, but but there's a lot of learning that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Was that this person who was a white man now le- who left their house um, without being looked at differently in any way, shape or form and had known anything different. It was just a part of their existence. It was um, it was just a truth. It was a, it was a fact like breathing air, you know, like mm-hmm. the sun rising and to now be different. And to walk outside and experience the same world. The world has not shifted, but they have. And the world now is shifting around them and treating them differently. Um, That they, and this person's just one of the most deeply compassionate individuals I've I've ever come across. But for them to even say, I have a deeper level of compassion now than I ever have had before. Because now I understand more of what it is like to be different or to to be seen or treated differently. Um, how do you equip somebody with that experience, um, that like knowing in your body, what it means to be different mm-hmm. when they're not different. And I believe that until we get people closer to that, um, it will still kind of look like, smell like, taste like some of the superficial efforts that are happening, albeit best intentions, um, but I just don't think it's enough. And I right. attribute some of that to, to people not really getting it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a tricky one because most people won't have that experience personally, certainly. And most people may not even know someone who has that kind of transformative experience and then eyes are opened. So I think a lot about there is something about changing hearts and minds, but I don't think that that's the end all game here. There is something really systemic going on and has been going on. And I do think there's something about, we just need to, we need to push into the future. We need to get there a little bit. So it smells and tastes and looks a little bit less 
like what is happening in the world right now, where there is white supremacy, there is racism. That Those are tough words to hear. And I know those are tough words to swallow, but I also think it's important to say what's going on. We all need to feel that. We all don't need to say, yes, that's me. Um, but I think there's something about it's both hearts and minds and it is what is going on um, in our organizations and in our world in front of us. A hundred percent. And I'm, I, I'm glad we're having the conversation. It's the type of thing that needs to stay, stay up front. You know, a few minutes ago, Martina, you uh, referenced 2020 as right now. And (laughs) I I thought it does still feel like it's (laughs) February 2020, you know, dot two. So um, I think that speaks to the fact that, yeah, we're still, um, we're still in the hamster wheel a little bit. And to Mm -hmm. your point, we need to push beyond that. And I, I'm optimistic that um, the post-COVID reality will create space for the richer dialogue, for the greater understanding, um, for us to kind of reconnect in a in a different way. Um, Although it seems there's there's tremendous connection that's happening, you know, virtually as well. So to not to discount that. Um, I've got one other big kind of hairy question for you. what is something that you believe to be true that other people believe is insane or crazy? I couldn't think of something actually insane. So I'm going to think of something. I thought of something impractical. Okay. I think the space that you and I are both in in coaching is this kind of very elite. You get to a certain level and you get a coach and it's frankly costly. Um, And it's just elite in this way that makes sense because it's not cheap. You want to really coach and affect the people who have the biggest impact on the organization. I get all of that. I happen to have have a belief that if you maybe flip that on its head a little bit, there could be some really interesting stuff. So if we think about, I say this a little bit tongue in cheek, but not that much. What would happen if we started coaching future leaders 15 years before they are absolutely committed to their bad habit? What if we taught people new into the workforce what it looked like that it turns out their org is actually not going to develop them for the next 20 years more than likely? Turns out the onus is on them for that. What if we taught them how to do that? What if we taught people how to go get feedback on their own more than once a year in a performance review? What if we had people really write down goals, not because it mattered to their organization, although isn't that wonderful when those overlap, but you write them down because they're impactful when they matter to you and you see what the outcome is going to be. We often leave this work until someone is the leader They have a huge responsibility. And of course, that makes sense. I happen to be very interested in getting that experience into younger people earlier in career, kind of just democratizing that because we'd all be better. We could all play to our strengths more. We could all give more. We could all end up in our natural talents um, when given the skills to be empowered, to grow, and to be our best. There are a lot of organizations that that are are popping up um, that are trying to get at that better up and torch and, and these yeah. organizations that are, are that are democratizing and making coaching more accessible. 
And I couldn't agree more. There is this tension that everyone, you know, every, I think everyone should have a coach and everyone should have a therapist. <laughs> you know, it should just be, um, you know, that in healthcare. Um, because what it's about is helping people navigate their lives to the fullest. If every human was navigating their life to the fullest and squeezing every bit out of their contribution to their time on earth, I think we'd be in a lot better place. And you and I both know there are um, massive systemic existential problems like um, climate change and race relations and homelessness and healthcare and COVID. We could certainly use an all hands on deck. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more in doing that. And yet I also struggle with coaching specifically is not something that can be done to you. Mm-hmm. And whenever an organization hires you or I in and says, we want you to change this person. It's like, well, that's a recipe. That's, that's <laughs> um, or if you have a client that isn't really invested in the coaching, I'm like, well, this isn't, um, you know, you go to a personal trainer and they tell you how to work out, but you're the one lifting the weights. They're not yep. doing it for you. There's no magic here. There's no magic here. And so how do you reconcile that with, with people that want it? I think there's a, there's a subset that would take the opportunity and run with it. Um, and I think there's folks that maybe haven't reached that maturity point or in your experience and my experience, finding that, that thing that really like, you know, that we're attracted to. And we say, we need, this is our, this is what we're here to do. This is our pursuit. So let me get resources around me to make sure I can excel in that space. Um, you know, how do we get people to figure out where that friction point is in their lives so that they can take advantage of coaching and development? Timing is everything. I am of the mind, if someone is not pretty rearing to go for coaching, they're not going to be a fit for me. Because like you and I have said, the work of coaching happens by the person being coached. So I am never trying to fit a square in a circle. And when someone has the appetite, has the energy, that's the moment to coach, not a moment before. So like with anyone, like with anything, they're the people who are ready and eager and willing, that moment in their life might happen after graduation, might happen five years in, 10 years in, 15 years in. And to really be able to strike when the iron's hot for them, that's what's I think really interesting. Not that this is going to work for everyone and not that every person is going to be ready at the same time, but kind of having that flexibility of, it's not just when you become the CEO, you maybe have had many inflection points before that and really being, being able to strike on those moments that's what's interesting. Do I have the financial solution for that? Do I know how to get coaches out into the world at that level? I don't, but I personally do coaching from the top leadership all the way down into an organization. I'm also coaching students at a college right now, which has been so rewarding. So on my teeny micro level, I'm trying to do it. Do I have the universal solution? Not yet. You're making the right steps. You're moving in the right direction. I think so much of it's about awareness and, and people need to know that it is accessible because it is. There are opportunities out there for people to get coaching should they want it. It's, it's not um, as it was even 15 years ago when it just wasn't possible. Technology has certainly helped close the gap on that as well. Absolutely. Um, I want to I pivot to use that, that five 
word that we use all <laughs> um, to ask you some kind of um, rewind questions. Like, let's tease out what is the wisdom that is within you, Martina, that you could share with with the world. I normally ask this question: um, if you could have dinner with anyone alive or dead, who would it be? But since you are a barbershop singer, um, who would you want to sing with, alive or dead, and 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 why? Oh my God, what a question! Celine Dion, Aretha Franklin, Mariah Carey. Those are the three. <laughs> so there's four. There would be four of you. Is that the right number? The, the that actually is a perfect barbershop quartet makeup. Okay. So that dream works perfectly. And what is like one quality that each of them would bring to to the music? Well, Aretha has the style and the soulfulness. Celine is powerful beyond belief. And Mariah is just kind of the queen. And you? I'm pretty good. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. Uh, that, would be, that would be a pretty cool uh, mashup to see. Um, what it, what's a mantra or a motto uh, that you live by or a, a quote that you live by? The guy mm. I think, I'm curious your opinion on this. Fake it till you make it is pretty powerful. You've heard through my career, I have made some leaps. I have taken some jumps. I have done the work to make that possible. But if I only looked at everything I'd done in the past to inform what I was going to do in the future, I wouldn't be where I am. And especially for women, we have a lot of imposter syndrome, as do I, as does almost every other woman I've ever met in a professional setting. There is something powerful about trusting that you can do it. You have to work hard. You have to have a little bit of luck. But faking it till you make it has proved successful for myself and for lots of other people. And I think a lot of people could take a page to just jump, trust, work really hard. But there is more in the future than is what in, what's in your past. Ooh, that's good. There's more in your future than what is in your past. There has to be. Absolutely. I mean, what you're talking about, I mean, fake it till you make it is a it it rhymes and it's <laughs> and there's something about things rhyme, they just stick. But what you're really talking about is having a belief in self, grit, resilience, perseverance, clarity of vision, um, a, a learner's mindset and you know, a growth mindset, a, a curiosity, a willingness to learn. Like those are all the makings of allowing yourself to be fake or not legitimized by somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, although you and I both know that there isn't anybody that like anoints you like when we would get knighted or something. They're like, well, now you've arrived. Right. Um, you know, especially as consultants and coaches, like we're really only as good as the work that we're doing in the moment with our client. Like that's the moment of validation. And then when it's over you know, what's up next? You know, we got to start again. Um, all right. Last question for you. I am a firm believer in the power of mentorship. Um, we actually met through Russ Allison. Russ Allison's been a mentor and friend of mine. Uh, when I think about my career and doors opening and where I am today, I, I, I would not be anywhere near close to where I am or doing what I'm doing today if it weren't for Russ. Uh, he's on my Mount Rushmore. I, I, I think the world of him. Um, 
So he's kind of my unlocking mentor. I'm curious who, who is yours and you know, what have they done for you and, and what lessons are you taking forward in your career as a result of their generosity? My life has changed by having men, my mentor. My mentor is Lacey Leone McLaughlin, who is the best of the best of executive coaches. She has instilled so much belief in myself And so when I say I did work to build that confidence, to take these leaps, that's partly myself and that's partly her among other people. She has given me opportunities to stretch. She has given me moments to fake it till I make it. (laughs) And she challenges me. This isn't hunky dory. Everything's great. Every time this is let's polish up this and let's make this better. But we debrief when we work together She gives me opportunities to be my best and to have to figure out how to be my best. Um, And she's, she believes in me. It has been life changing to have met her. And I met her through networking out of my own volition. Again, a little bit of grit and a little bit of luck made that relationship possible. And it's changed my life. It's changed the trajectory of where I've been able to go. Like you say, through opening doors, creating opportunities, believing in me. That is so much why I have the belief about coaching and mentorship early on. I could be doing what I am in 20 years, potentially. I'm doing it now because I've met Lacey. Wow. Shout out to Lacey. Uh, (laughs) She is amazing. Uh, You, you two are amazing together. And, uh, and it's great that the opportunity to be a mentor is such a gift, Um, but the opportunity to have one, it's priceless. Definitely. Um, Thank you so much. This was a blast. And I, and I think we got to do it again um, because there's just so much that we, that we didn't even explore and and didn't uncover, especially as you and I kind of like start to tinker in the workshop and create our own magic. Uh, Martina, thank you so much. Is there anything that you want uh, folks listening to know or where to find you um, before we break? I am able to be found at martinastoneconsulting.com. Very easy. And I am always interested in hearing from individuals looking to improve themselves, teams looking towards greater effectiveness, any work in that area, any question to kick around. I am all ears for that. Awesome. All right, everybody, reach out to Martina. She's one of the greats. Martina, thank you very, very much. And uh, I look forward to connecting again soon. Me too. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to an episode of The Leadership Mind. New episodes will be coming out every few weeks, so please stay tuned. And in the meantime, think about what stories are you telling yourself? What realities are you crafting in your mind? It may not be true and may be limiting your ability to connect, lead, and grow. Thanks for listening and have a great day.